Well, welcome to the 30th episode of Spurbs Herbs. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite fruits, actually. I, I uh, purchase these a lot. It's a good deal at Costco, by the way, if you have a Costco around you. But we're going to be talking about blackberries today. Uh, Rubus fruticosis is the Latin for that. And, of course, we're going to get into that in, in a lot of depth. And, of course, we're going to have something a little different. So why don't we get started? So before we do, I want to talk about something that I'm working on right now. It is a whole series of webinars called that I call my Drug Herb Series or Drug Herb Interaction Webinar Series. If you want to know about drugs, how they interact with herbs, and how they act according to Chinese medicine, this is the series for you. Everyone should get a ton of information about the first two courses, from the first two courses, the basics of pharmacology, where we discuss how drugs and by the same token, herbs work on the body, because they are the same. They act on the body exactly the same. And our second course is called Drug-Herb Interactions and the Matrix, which describes major risk factors for interactions and gives you a unique, powerful, real-world tool for assessing them. To check out the series in all of my online and live California Acupuncture Board continuing education units and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine Professional Development Activity Courses, go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. That's integrativemedicinecouncil.org. Thank you for checking that out. So today's podcast, in this exciting episode, we will be looking at a tasty Western herb, blackberries. We've had a couple tasty ones. Our last one was, was mint, and so now we're into blackberries, all my favorites. Uh, but what is cool about this herb is that many parts of it are used medicinally, though for similar conditions. So it's interesting. Usually we, we kind of focus on one part of an herb. This is several parts of the herb are used uh, medicinally as well. We'll be exploring these uses as well as our little something different, a look at a seminal herbal court case, F. Molly versus Heckler. I can't wait. I hope you can't wait. So let's get going. So F. Molly versus Heckler. We have talked about legends, Chinese, herb, uh, Chinese medical theory, beer, the rediscovered herb curve, Deche, or D-S-H-E-A, which we'll mention here today, black garlic, philosophy, and lots of other stuff, and are some things a little different. Today we're going to talk about a court case. So again, something a little different about something a little different. But not just any case. One of the most important, not well-known, and certainly underappreciated cases in the history of herbs in the United States. And it is called Hefmali versus Heckler. First, some background. Herb sales in the United States really started taking off in the early 1970s. A lot of people say this was, was definitely pushed by the, the hippie movement of the late 60s and early 70s. And one of the first big companies that imported and promoted herbs was F. Molly Herb Company, owned by the husband and wife team of Ben Zarakar and Luis Veninga. F. Molly was a company that sold 10-speed bikes, and when the shipment of bikes failed to show, they did what any good company would. They pivoted. If you're going to San Francisco's Chinatown, 
they realized there may be a broader market for herbs in the United States. The company started selling Tiger Balm and ginseng. So think about that for a second. I mean, Tiger Balm is one of the best well-known uh, herbal substances in the United States. I mean, I can talk all day long about all sorts of, of, of liniments and what have you, and everyone won't, they don't even know what a liniment is, but you mentioned Tiger Bomb, they know exactly what it is. So very, very popular. And of course, ginseng was, was what I call one of the first superstar herbs that ever, that, that was here. When I was, a, when I was a kid and I was first starting to learn this stuff in my, my late teens, ginseng was top of the list for herbs. So these are really powerhouses, and these, this was the company that really kind of put them on the map. Veninga actually ended up writing a book on ginseng, which is considered very significant and helped promote herbs in the U.S. Not only did they help promote herbs in general in the U.S., it kind of created this whole subgenre of herb books. Uh, so that became a really popular thing to do was to write a book on an herb. And, and uh, you know, first you get a, a good, good selling book and then also you get to sell the herb out of it. So that was very prescient, I think, on their part. However... Or dark clouds forming. At the same time that all this was occurring, the Food and Drug Administration was becoming more restrictive in many ways when it came to herbs and supplements. In fact, they were they had all kinds of rules like you couldn't have vitamins with more than 150 percent of the required daily allowance. Uh, so, or what we call right now the RDI, the re required daily intake. Um, so that's significant because if you look at any bottle of vitamins on the market today they're probably going to have some ingredients, even basic multivitamins that are over 150% of the RDI. So here's the issue. For decades at this point, this is, remember, we're talking the early to mid-70s at this point. For decades at this point, they had a law, and it was called the Food Additives Amendment of 1958 to the Food, Drugs, and Cosmetic, Cosmetic Act of 1938. These are like foundational laws for the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And so they had to they had to follow what these said. But here's what was interesting. That amendment in 1958 basically said if a food, quote unquote, food additive is generally recognized as safe. So GRAS, this is a, this is a very standard term. It's called GRAS, is a G-R-A-S, generally recognized as safe, which means you can sell it, you can eat it, you can promote it, all those sort of things. So GRAS is a really important uh, uh, you know, sort of label for your, for, your, for your food, for your herbs, for your supplements. And it could be considered grass. If you food additive can be, or in, in that case, they, at this point, they didn't have a designation of supplement, a food supplement. So food additive was as close as it was. That's what all the things that we call vitamins and supplements today would have been considered a food additive. And it was considered grass, generally recognized as safe, if prior to 1958, when this law first came into place, it had a long history of use. So in other words, if it was used for decades or for quite a while before 1958, it was considered grass. Otherwise, you had to base it on scientific studies, which of course can be very expensive, time-consuming, difficult to do. So they really liked this long history of use as a determination for generally recognized as safe. Here's the problem. In 1974, the FDA said, well, all right, well, this is the law. We got to follow law. But they made it a regulation in interpreting that law. They said that that prior use of before 1958 only applied to use in the United States. 
So even though there were herbs that had been used for thousands of years in China safely, this regulation basically said, no, it's not acceptable in the United States. It has to, had to have been used in the United States prior to 1958. That's huge. That meant they could stop shipments from entering the U.S., which they did. And basically, it would have strangled the herb prof profession, definitely, but the industry first. We could not have sold herbs in the United States if this regulation were, were uh, set to stand. So a couple years after this, in 1976, the herb, the, the, you know, people who were doing this in the herbs, they realized, hey, we need to fight this, and we, we really should probably fight this together. So they founded the Herb Trade Association, which lasted about five years into 1981, after which uh, the American Herbal Products Association was founded in 1982. So this is considered a precursor to, the, to APA, the American Herbal Products Association. If you're not familiar with APA, this is still in play today, very strong uh, uh, association, not just for the the people producing this, but also for us as as, as practitioners. They they make a really great safety book um, that I, I reference all the time in my and I do today in my Spurbs Herbs. So um, very useful association, very very prominent in our field. So when this this herbal trade association was created, they decided. Um, well, we don't want to concentrate all the power in one person. So they, they did a tripartite president. So they had three presidents, and one of them was Ben Zarekar. Uh So Ben was one of the first three presidents. And in the 1980s, uh, in the early 1980s, they discussed how to handle the FDA. And Zarekar and Veninga's company, F. Molly Herb Company, decided to sue them on a very narrow issue about this rule. Long history of safe herb use should not be limited to a history in the U.S. That was their only issue. And they asked for support. They did this outside of the Herb Trade Association. They did it themselves. They paid for it themselves. They were doing pretty well at this point. They, they, they had come up with another really popular um, product from China that combined ginseng and, and um, uh, uh, not bee pollen, but the other one, the, uh, the royal jelly. The royal jelly, the ginseng. And uh, Shishanza, Wuidza, and they, they was selling really well, but they were saying because the Shishanza was not, Wuidza was not used in the U.S. prior to 1958, this was an illegal product. And so they decided to take them to court. They asked for, for money, a few people contributed, but most of them said, you're not going to win against the FDA. This is the freaking FDA, you're not going to win. But they, they carried through. And, and they went to court. So Heckler, by the way, in this F. Molly versus Heckler, was the Secretary of Health and Human Services in 1983 when this actually, actually ended up being in front of the court. So that's why it's called F. Molly versus Heckler. F. Molly is the herb company. Heckler is the Secretary of State of Health and Human Services, which oversaw the FDA at that point. And they went to court. And they battled. And they lost. They did not win. So what did they do? I skip a thing here. They decided that they were going to appeal. And so they appealed to the United States Court of Appeal for the Ninth District. And, uh, uh, oh, sorry, they, a judge originally, where they failed, a judge for the Federal District Court of San Francisco ruled in favor of the FDA. So they lost. F. Molly appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth District, and they won. 
court said it was not permissible that the FDA would limit the safe use clause only to the U.S. and had to take history of safe use in other parts of the world as acceptable to be considered generally regarded as safe. Without this, we would not be able to import Chinese herbs into this country. There were almost no Chinese herbs used prior to 1958. This effectively, if this hadn't been one, we would not be able to import our Chinese herbs. So this is huge, absolutely huge. This win was unexpected and really helped. I mean unexpected, like there were titans of the herbal industry at this point that said there's no way this is going to win. We're not going to put money into this. We're going to figure out another way to deal with this. And so they were, the, you know, the, the uh, F. Molly was kind of on its own. They had a few supporters, but most of them were, they were pretty much on their own, paid for this on their own. The win was unexpected, really helped establish the use of herbs, and especially Chinese herbs in the U.S., as I mentioned. And this was the law of the land until about 1994. This was when that Deshay came into law, that um, Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994 became law. And this was one of the most important decisions about herbs in the U.S. up until that point. That and then Deshay became the law of the land. If you want to know more about Deshay, and, and I pronounce it Deshay. I don't know if other people do, um, but I, I have a tendency to pronounce my my acronyms. So I didn't go to UCSD. I went to UCSD. So, <laughs> which is no one says UCSD. So, <laughs> um, but that's my tendency. So I call it Deshay. I don't know if it's appropriate or not. But I did talk about Deshay as a little something different in our episode 14. So you can always go back and figure out why Deshay is so important. And it is important um, for herbs in this country. Uh, many are not even sure we would have a thriving herbal industry and professions without the Seminole Court decision. I'm going to go so far as to say, if we did have a thriving profession and herbal industry in this, in this country, it would have happened a lot later uh, than this you know, if this decision hadn't happened. You know, we may still be at the very beginning stages of this. I don't know about you guys. I've been in this profession for, um, I don't know, I'm going on uh, nearly 30 years at this point, not quite, 30 years. And I've seen a lot more acceptance of our profession as Chinese practitioners than I ever had before. So um, we would have been decades behind the ball if this, this decision hadn't happened. And, and yet, this decision is not well-known except for a few of herbal industry pioneers. I mean, let me tell you, I didn't know about this. I learned about this. This is the, this is the interesting thing. I was, I, 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 I don't even remember where I got it. It was an email, or I was just kind of scrolling soon. I was doing some research, random research or something, and I came across this article about F. Molly versus Heckler, and I was fascinated. I'd never heard of it before, and I am, I have been involved in legislation and, 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 um, lobbying efforts, and I had never heard about this before. So I was fascinated. I hadn't heard about it, and yet I can see instantly how important this decision was. So it just was not very well known uh, for quite a while. And that is our little something different for today. F. Molly versus Heckler. I hope you enjoyed that and learned something from it. So without further ado, let's get into our herb of the day. Rubus fruticosis and blackberry. I'm actually really excited that this Latin is, is easy to pronounce. Usually it's not, but Rubus fruticosis seems, I, I'm still probably getting it wrong, but it <laughs> seems a lot easier to pronounce than, than normal. So it comes in the family Rosaceae, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And you're going to love this. It's the rose family. That's what Rosaceae means. So this is actually, blackberries are part of the ro family of roses. 
Uh, the medicinal parts of the leaves, roots, and berries, like I said, lots of different parts of this plant uh, are there. And in fact, when we talk about some of the, the what it does, stems come into play a little bit as well. So stems can play a little bit of a role as well. Tons of other names for blackberry. There's American blackberry, dewberry, though some people say a dewberry is different than blackberry. Bramble um, is another word, brambleberry. Bramble raspberry, well, that seems weird. Why would they call it a raspberry when it's clearly a blackberry? Well, maybe there's some similarities between a raspberry and a blackberry. We might find out about that. Let's stay tuned. I love this name, cloudberry. Goutberry, which actually kind of talks about what one of its medicinal uses for gout. High blackberry. Thimbleberry. I kind of like thimbleberry. It looks like a thimble. Uh, shrubby blackberry. Blackbriar. Uh, bumble kite. Brummel kites. Thievethorn. Zarzamora. I'm assuming that's a different language. Scaldhead. That was an interesting. In Chinese, it's heimei. And I don't know the tone marks on that. And then another one was garacha. Again, I, I assume that's a different language, but I couldn't quite figure out where which language it was, but I found it as a, as a name for this. So lots of different names for, for what we call blackberry. And here's the issue, is I just said the, the, it's a rubus fruticosis, but there's controversy over this actual species name. Rubus fruticosis could mean Rubus fruticosis L. And um, remember we had an episode on that little something different where we talked about this L behind it. And that actually refers to Linnaeus, who was one of the first to, was the first really to start classifying animals and plants into species and genii and uh, genuses, genii, and all that. So uh, it could be that. Uh, it could also correspond to, to um, Rubus plicatus, uh, so that's another specific species. We're not sure. It can refer to both Rubus plicatus and Rubus omofolius, um, um, so two different things that aren't even Rubus fruticosus. Or it could be a species aggregate, a group of similar species. And in this case, it should be written Rubus fruticosus ag, A-G-G, period. And I actually, after, you know, Several sources said similar things, slightly different from some sources, but they all said this is sort of a, a strange and not really a very specific species. I kind of like this idea of aggregate, especially when you get into all the different cultivars and everything of this. So I, I, I think I've kind of settled on this Rubus fruticosus as being an aggregate species, so a non-specific species that may encompass other specific species under the same rubric of blackberry. So... That's Ruby, Rubus fruticosus, so it's not quite as straightforward as we always like. Rubus is derived from the Latin, and its meaning is blackberry. It actually means blackberry. The word fruticosus is also derived from a Latin word frutico, which means shrubby or bushy. And that's, that seems to be the plant. It's, it's, a, it's a bramble. It's a, it's a big, bushy, shrubby mess of things. And uh, they grow very easily and grow into wild mass of things. So you have to be careful with it um, when you're actually growing it. I so would love to grow some of these, but I also have a big, long hill that will allow these to grow completely wildly. So I'm not going to, I don't know if I'll be doing that. And, and a lot of the species, not all of them, a lot of the cultivars are thorny, so they can be difficult to pick. 
So let's talk about that rosacea family real quick. The rosacea rose family is a medium-sized family of herbs, shrubs, and trees in the order Rosales, comprising 4,828 species in 91 genera. So that's pretty large. Uh, you know, even though this is a medium-sized family, uh, from what we've talked about in this in 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 our superb herbs, that's a fairly large family. Many edible fruits are in this family, including all my favorites, apples, pears, quinces. I don't know if a quince is my favorite or not. I don't know if I've ever had a quince. Um, apricots, plums, cherries, peaches, raspberries, loquats. Loquats rank as one of my favorite fruits. My, my grandparents had a loquat tree, fantastic. Strawberries, rose hips, hawthorns and hawthorn berries. Almonds and almonds. So, I mean, a lot of really interesting, very commonly eaten fruits and, and nuts, really, as well as many ornamental trees and shrubs also belong in this family. Most are deciduous, though some are evergreen. And while they are present worldwide, they are particularly diverse in the northern hemisphere. So this is a real wide distribution, but like I, like I said, more diverse in the northern hemisphere. Uh, dosing has been, it was actually a little bit difficult to find, but I found some sources. So dosing of the leaf is one heaping teaspoon or four, about 4.5 grams, according to one source, of the dried leaf for one cup of hot water. And one source said drink a half a cup uh, every hour for diarrhea, to treat diarrhea. So that would be that. And that's a typical blackberry leaf tea or infusion or, or tisane is a common approach to, to taking this. Uh, Grunwald, um, which is the, the herbal PDR physician's desk reference, big giant book, say the dose is 2.5 grams of the leaves. So that's right in the ballpark of maybe a little bit less than that 4.5 grams. The first historical evidence is from the remains of the um, Heraldskare. Again, I don't know how to pronounce that. Woman found in a Danish bog approximately 2,500 years ago. Well, it wasn't found 2,500 years ago. It was found more recently, but it was, it was uh, the, the, the woman died 2,500 years ago, and they found in her stomach was some blackberries. So that was something that she had eaten 2,500 years ago. The first documentation appears in the Greek pharmacopoeia, Juliana An Anicia Codex, in the early 6th century. And then not a ton of references since then. There was something uh, in 1771 talking about blackberries and cordials and, and wine and, and something along those lines. And there was some medicinal stuff, uh, I think, in the 1600s. Um, so not a lot uh, that uh, is well known uh, since this 6th century Juliana Anicia Codex. So I said... You know, we talked about raspberries a little bit. Blackberries are very similar to raspberries and are often grouped together. They're both perennial plants. And the main difference between them is when picked, the torus or central stem stays with the fruit and blackberries while they do not with raspberries, leaving a hollow core. So if you can picture, raspberry has that nice hollow center. But if you look at the fruit, they actually look very similar to blackberries, even if they're, they're a different color. Um, but... When you look at a blackberry, it has that little stem in the middle sort of thing. And it's edible. It's perfectly edible. So that's called a torus. 
and and um, technically neither raspberries or blackberries, they are not berries, even though it has berry right in the name. <laughs> it is actually considered an aggregate fruit with each little fruit sphere being a small droplet with its own fleshy outside and seed on the inside. So um, droops, if you're not familiar with this term, droops are fruits. So if you have a peach, a droop is a peach and it has a pericarp, which is the outside and um, the, it, it actually has three layers. So it's the very outside with the skin. It's the fleshy, fruity part that we love. And then there's uh, the endocarp, which is just um, surrounds the actual uh, uh, seed in the middle and then has the seed in the middle. And that's a droop. That whole thing is a droop. And when we're talking about blackberries, they're called drooplets or small droops. And so each one of those little spheres you see in a blackberry are an individual small fruit. And it has, a, it has a, a skin and a fleshy interior and a seed in the middle. So think of a, instead of a berry, which is all one fruit, these are all, there's, I don't know, 50 little fruits on every little blackberry, 20, 30, 50 of them. Each one of those little spheres is a little fruit. They do need to be pollinated in order to develop. So the flowers need to, to bloom and, and there needs to be bees and that's how they, they pollinate in general. Uh, otherwise, you, you don't get a full blackberry. So quality for this, leaves should be picked when they are young and tender. So don't, not old and not, not uh, leathery. They should be tender and they should be picked fresh if you can. They can be dried and there are ways to dry them. So you can either have them fresh or dry. A ripe blackberry is deep black, not shiny, with a plump, full, and slightly tender feel. If the berry is red or purple, it is not ripe yet. And the other thing is, they say when you pick them, be careful, because if you pick too many, they spoil easily. They spoil rapidly. Within a few days, the fruit will spoil. So you either need to freeze them right away or do something with them or eat them. That's my preferred method <laughs> right away uh, because they do tend to go back and uh, to go bad. In fact, there's this, this folklore that you never pick a blackberry after September, after Michaelmas is what they say in ancient times, uh, which is in September, because after that, they're the devil's fruit. Uh, and the devil has, has stomped on them and, and, and done it, and so you do not eat them after Michaelmas. And actually, there's a little bit of, of science and reason behind that, because after that point, they, they do tend to become moldy and have um, uh, other things that can... It, can be uh, it can be sickening to someone who eats it, so it's not a bad thing. But the the folklore is that it, the devil has has done its due, uh, so don't take them after Michaelmas in September. So traditional uses for blackberries: there is evidence of the use in various parts of this plant by the ancient Greeks for diseases of the mouth and throat, and to prevent other diseases such as gout. So again, that name goutberry. Interestingly. The leaf was an early hair dye because of the color of the hair black after boiling it in a lye solution. So interesting. I, I also read other parts of it, like the, the that was the leaf, but you could also, um, if you did the root, I think it was an orange dye and uh, just different dyes from this plant. Very interesting. 
I, I love this. Blackberry tea was said to be a cure for dysentery during the American Civil War. During outbreaks of dysentery, temporary truces were declared to allow both Union and Confederate soldiers to go blackberrying to forage for blackberries. I thought that was an interesting and shows how long it's been in the United States. It does have, um, there are some traditional uses from Native Americans as well as other parts of the world, so lots of that. The root was used in folk medicine to treat dropsy, which is a nice old term for edema. Uh, so Donna's asking if uh, the other names we listed earlier, for example, thimbleberry are not necessary blackberries as we know them. So it's, it's, that's a good question, Donna, because sometimes they are just different names and sometimes they are slightly different um, species. Um, the, if they are slightly different species, they can be confused with blackberries, and I'm not sure if they are or aren't. And again, we're kind of talking about aggregative species here, so they can actually, you know, it, it can be one in the same. You know, it, it can be similar species that are still considered blackberries, but are more technically dewberries or something else along those lines. So it gets a little complicated in that when we start talking about these names sort of things. So, but yeah, it, 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 it may or may not be blackberries as we know them is the bottom line. It depends on the names. Yeah. All right, so back to this dropsy or edema. Uh, I, I love this term dropsy. I've heard it before. I never really, I, I had to look it up to figure out what it is. It's edema, um, which is a very common potentially common situation. So this can be used in uh, the root is used to treat edema and for gastrointestinal conditions. So we're getting gastrointestinal. We're getting a lot of hits on gastrointestinal here, and that's that's a good thing to hit. Commission E, if you're not familiar, familiar with Commission E, this was a project by the European Union. Uh, now it's been a few decades, and they produced these uh, Commission E monographs that they looked at all the science, and these are the things that are actually allowed to be sold in Europe without without hassles if they said it was safe. And so um, it's it's, a, it's to this day, even though they're they're decades old, are still very much kind of looked at to see to learn about herbs. So Commission E has approved the leaf to treat diarrhea and inflammation of the mouth and pharynx, and that basically says there's enough scientific information uh, to support those uses and enough information to say it's safe to, to use for those uses. So diarrhea, inflammation of the mouth and pharynx or throat is, is definitely one of the uses for this. Uh, Green, who, who wrote um, a book on, on how to make medicine, says it is an astringent for the gastrointestinal tract and is hemostatic, which means stop bleeding. So hemostatic and stops bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract. So if anything's going on with that, that's useful. Astringent means kind of holding in, and we see that word a lot in a lot of these, these functions. The right White Rabbit Institute of Healing says it can be used in dysentery, which is uh, in basically infectious diarrhea, diarrhea, hemorrhoids, cystitis, so that is uh, in, uh, bladder infection, uh, manual cramp, uh, menstrual cramping, not manual cramping, menstrual cramping, wounds, skin irritations, can regulate menstrual flow and soothes sore throat and phlegmy cough. So this is the white, um, when I'm not really, good question, I have a question, are these the root or the leaf? If I'm not specifying if it's the root or leaf, the, the original article didn't specify the root or leaf. So unfortunately, things were not always clear, though I would say that more often than not, when they're not making it clear, they're probably talking about the leaf uh, the root seemed to be a little bit more obscure than the leaf. I found more 
uh, stuff on the leaf than I did on the root. So I think um, if it doesn't say it's probably referring to the leaf, but more often than not, they just said the blackberry, which I find in a lot of uh, stuff from from sites that aren't from herbalists. They won't be specific about the parts. So, yeah. So another website, Medicinal Herb Info, says the leaves and roots are a long-standing home remedy for cholera, anemia, regulates menses, diarrhea, and dysentery. So, and, and this kind of brings up a lot of what I, I mentioned, you know, about this. Is like I said, yeah, leaves are probably, when I look it up, I have a, a great book that kind of translates uh, the, the Western herbs into Chinese herbal thinking, and that only had the blackberry leaf. That was the entry on it. It didn't mention the roots at all in that, in that monograph. But more often than not, what I found was, um, unlike most plants, everything kind of did very similar things in the blackberry. So some of them did it stronger than others. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, but generally, the leaves and the roots and the fruit had similar medicinal uses in general. So that was a little eye-opening for me. So yeah. So prolonged use of the tea is also beneficial for enteritis, which is, is um, inflammation of the intestines, chronic appendicitis, stomach upset, and leucorrhea, which is, is nuclear white discharge, usually vaginal discharge is what they're talking about for leucorrhea. It is said to have expectorant properties as well, so it brings up phlegm, which of course agrees with a lot of the other sources we have here. The chewing of the leaves for bleeding gums goes back to the time of Christ. That's a quote. That's what they said. So um, I, that's an interesting thing. Again, it talks about how long that's been around for over 2,000 years. The fruit and juice are taken for anemia. That's interesting. And as a lotion, it's reported to cure psoriasis and scaly conditions of the skin. So I'm always very wary to use the, the C word, the cure word, because I don't think anything in medicine is actually, we don't cure anything. We treat things and, and we get beneficial outcomes, but um, I don't like the word cure. As a, as a medical practitioner, I don't cure anything. I treat things, treat conditions, and hopefully they become cured. That's the goal, but I don't, I can't, I never say I cure something. So I always have a little bit of an, an issue with that. Word, but so reported to help psoriasis and scaly conditions. Preparation. So again, Green, who is a, is a book on how to make herbs, uh, without distinguishing the specific parts of the plant, says it can be prepared by decoction or water boiled syrup and tincture. So tincture would indicate an alcohol. Uh, solution uh, extraction, basically. So those are the three methods that they did. He didn't mention things like um, uh, an infusion, which is a tea. A lot of what we do is infusion. And when we when I read this, so I was a little curious about that that it didn't include infusion as one of the preparations. Uh, Gronwald, who is uh, on the team that did the herbal PDR pre uh, professional best reference says it is prepared as an infusion and as a mouthwash. So we have mouthwash come up. And again, benefits the throat and the mouth. So that makes sense, the mouthwash. Um, Holmes, who is a, an herbalist who did translate Western herbs into Chinese uh, sort of things, says the leaves can be used as an infusion, a tincture, a gargle and mouthwash, as well as swabs and compresses on external surfaces and as douches or enemas. So lots of different ways to use it according to him. And, and he was all about the leaf. He did not mention the other parts of this plant at all. 
so what about Chinese medicine? What do they say about BlackBerry? And I found several sources for Chinese medical approaches to blackberries, and specifically their leaves. However, none are necessar necessarily definitive and are, and are more useful as possible approaches rather than hard facts. Not to mention they can be contradictory. There were several that disagreed with each other. So I think I got sort of a, a theme going through it. So the White Rabbit Institute, um, I, I like them because they, they have the, the, the traditional uses, uh, traditional Western uses, and then they have a good attempt at the Chinese side of things. So I kind of like that they have a side to side. And they say that Blackberry enters the lung and bladder channels and clears heat, reduces inflammation, dries damp, promotes tissue repair, stops bleeding, expels phlegm, softens stones, and promotes urination. And they say that the tastes are sweet, slightly bitter, and it's astringent and cooling. So, so that, that makes sense. That's a lot of sort of the traditional uses of this. Um, I think um, lung, there's some definitely with the expelling of the phlegm and everything, lungs involved, bladders there. Um, there's a lot in the mouth and, and, and stuff like that. I, I, I wonder if I'd add stomach in as a, as a, or as a channel, but I, I don't know. And we'll see some other differences on this in just a minute. So that's the White Rabbit Institute. Um, Jung, who is basically a private practitioner, but he had some pretty good um, information on his website, basically agrees that they are cooling, astringent, and dry, enter the lung and bladder, and benefits include clears heat, reduces inflammation. Again, not really a traditional Chinese uh, thing, but that is something that we, it is anti-inflammatory promotes tissue repair, expels phlegm, promotes urination. Again, we're seeing that quite a bit. Softens stones, prevents stomach ulcers, <coughs> and an effective antibiotic to fight against helicobacter pylori. If you're not familiar with helicobacter pylori, this is the very teeny tiny uh, bacteria that is associated with, st uh, with stomach ulcers. So that's how we treat stomach ulcers these, these days as we try to knock out the helicobacter pylori. And there's a whole story behind it, which I'm not going to get into. It's fascinating. Um, you can look it up. And it treats diarrhea, hemorrhoids, and lung conditions. So very interesting there. Another website, ChineseNutrition.org, completely disagrees with all this. Says they are warm, not cooling, enters the kidney and liver, so it doesn't even mention the bladder and lung, and have sweet and sour flavors. and does not have any, they didn't mention any specific functions for this. So um, in general, uh, I, I've used them in the past as a, as a source, but I, I, think they're, I, I think they're pretty off on the BlackBerry. But I wanted to bring it up as an opposing point of view here. Holmes. Now, Holmes, remember, is the one who has this, this book on translating Western herbs into Chinese uh, thoughts. I don't often agree with what he has, but it's well thought out. Um, and, and what he does. And so he says the leaf, again, he only looked at the leaf, is astringent and cool, enters the bladder and large intestine. So it doesn't even talk about the lung. And it says it enters the Chong and Ren channels, which is not a traditional approach. So the Chong is the penetrating, the Ren is the conception channels. These are not um, channels that we usually think of you know, when we're, we're talking about which channels the herbs enter into. Um, so that's a little bit of a non-traditional approach to this. And he has several functions for these, including uh, promotes restriction and stops discharge and bleeding. 
that tackles a couple of the issues that we had that, you know, some of the traditional uses to stop bleeding and to stop leucorrhea, things along those lines. Promotes urination, relieves irritation, and dissolves stones. So again, very similar to some of the other thoughts we have. Resolves viscous phlegm, so, so thick phlegm, so that's good. Tonifies reproductive chi, strengthens the uterus, and enhances delivery. So he presents it as very good for pregnancy. Other sources say, eh, maybe we need to be a little careful around pregnancy, though it seems safe. There's nothing to really prove safety around it. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, uh, function here that I didn't really see a lot of um, traditionally, you know, at some of the traditional uses of it. And it promotes tissue repair, reduces inflammation, and benefits the throat. So the benefit of the throat, we heard traditionally, that's very similar. The, again, reduces inflammation, not a traditional Chinese approach to this um, sort of thing. We, would, we don't use the term inflammation. It's not a Chinese medical term. Um, but this has definitely been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects. So I don't disagree with it. I just wouldn't put it into a Chinese function. And then it promotes tissue repair as well. All right, so that's what he says. So very interesting. You kind of, I like having different sources um, especially when they disagree with each other, because in trying to figure out why they disagree, we start to learn more about the herbs as we go along. So let's compare this with some other herbs. Um, many sources, including Gardner and MacGuffin, um, this is that APA that we were talking about, that book um, from the American uh, Herb Producers Association. Uh, it's a great book on herb safety. Again, I don't remember the title off the top of my head. Let me see, I can look it up real quick here. Um, this is, um, it is called the American Herbal Products Association's Botanical Safety Handbook, and I have the second edition of it. So that's, that's the book that we were talking about earlier that the question was on, so that's a good one. So that book, which is all about safety, so it doesn't talk a lot about functions of these herbs, um, actually talks about blackberries and raspberries in the exact same monograph. So in other words, the exact same entry is talking about both blackberries and raspberries. That's how close they are. Um, speaking of little botanical and potentially medicinal differences. So there's some differences, but not much at all between the raspberry and the blackberry. And, and, and that was echoed other sources I had was very similar in that regard as well. Though a lot of sources I had were comparing raspberries to blackberries and other berries for various medicinal uh, uses. So there are differences here. Holmes. Uh, says wild strawberry or Fragaria vesca L, leaf and root. So wild strawberry leaf and root can be used interchangeably with blackberry leaf. Uh, he does say the strawberry leaf is also good as a diuretic detoxicant. That's how that's a direct quote. Useful in rheumatic disorders, so that's autoimmune disorders, gout, urinary stones, and hematuria or blood in the urine. So that is Holmes. There's some comparisons with some other herbs. Some biomedical indications for this, they appear to be antimicrobial. Uh, though we're gonna find out, I, there was an interesting study that looked at antiviral, antifungal, and antibacterial properties and found that um, it was definitely strongly antibacterial. Um, and and it, another thing that I looked at said it was antiviral, at least for some specific viruses. But one of the studies that said it was quite antibacterial tested it uh, or looked at fungal activity, antifungal activity, and found none. So it doesn't appear to be antifungal. 
Um, so the antimicrobial, um, which to me is a general term for all of those things, is not quite right. It's definitely antibacterial, probably antiviral. I would not say it's antifungal. And then anti-cancer, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in the literature about it being anti-cancer, anti-dysentery, anti-diabetic. This is another thing that comes up quite a bit that it could be very helpful for diabetes. And as a caution, that's really the only caution that kind of came up, which is if you're going to have a lot of this herb, just if you are diabetic, just keep an eye on your sugar levels. They didn't, they weren't worried about it. I don't even think I mentioned it as a caution uh, or a concern later on, but they said just keep an eye on it, basically. Not, so it, it appears to be anti-diabetic, but maybe not strong enough so. Anti-diarrheal, definitely traditional use of this. And also, a, not just a good antioxidant, one of the best antioxidants out there. And we'll see um, why that is in just a minute. Those are some of the biomedical indications for this. And here's the science. So there is some evidence of antibacterial activity, a blackberry menthol extract, so that's an alcohol extract. They found... What I liked about this is they kept they, they did the various parts of the plant and showed which were the strongest. So what they found were the stems were the best antibacterial portion, followed by the roots, the leaves, and least of all, the fruit. Still had some antibacterial function, but was not anywhere near as strong as, as the other parts of that. So I kind of like that it ranked the various parts of this. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, they did not find any antifungal activity of any of the parts. There appears to be anti-inflammatory effects, especially from the fruit. The fruit appears to be more anti-inflammatory than the other parts of the, of the herb. And this may be due to COX-2 and INOS, or inducible nitric oxide synthase gene suppression. Both of those are really um, well expressed and are important to the inflammatory process. So if you can inhibit that you're going to have a lot less inflammation happen. Those two, uh, they're, they're both enzymes. So COX, I, I just said COX-2, is cyclooxygenase, which is uh, one of the, when we talk about NSAIDs, like our, our ibuprofen and our aspirin, things along those lines, they're all COX-2 inhibitors. That's, that's one of the main ways that they, they reduce pain. So that's very important. The leaves appear to have anti-diabetic properties, at least in rats. And again, you know, rat studies are relatively low. does not mean it's going to help in humans, but at least it indicates that. And there's a lot of indication that that might be the case, even though it's not been well tested in humans at this point. There may be some anxiolytic effects with methanol extract. So that's interesting. Anxiolytic means reduction of anxiety. So, um, Sorry, could you say oh. that? Sorry, that was my watch for some reason. I think I knock it sometimes. So I uh, may have some anxiolytic effects with methanol extracts. The fruit was greater in these anxiolytic effects than the roots, uh, then the, the roots, then leaves, and then the stem was the least effective at the anxiolytic effects. So um, again, it, uh, what I liked about this particular article is it ranked the different parts of it. So if you want to, to chill, then eat more fruit. <laughs> eat more of the blackberry fruits. Many constituents have antioxidant properties. We'll talk about some of those in just a minute when we talk about con contents. And another study mentions analgesic and angiogenic effects of the leaf. So analgesic means, you know, pain relieving. So we, we've, we've, if it's inhibiting COX-2, if it's inhibiting INOS, um, it is definitely uh, in the realm of analgesic and pain relief. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think 
It says angiogenic effects of the leaves. So angiogenic means it produces blood vessels. And everything I read, I think what they meant to say was anti-angiogenic effects because a lot of sources said this is anti-cancer and the way it does that is it prevents proliferation of blood vessels. So I think this is not angiogenic effects. I think it's anti-angiogenic effects, even though in the article it said angio angiogenic effects. And we're going to see, we're going to talk about that in just a second here. So um, it does have some anti-cancer properties, which they think is due to prevention of blood vessel growth. So contents of the blackberry. There are many useful medicinal and beneficial constituents in the various parts of the blackberry. These ins include ascorbic acid. There's high levels of vitamin C. That's ascorbic acid. So um, there's other um, minerals as well. Um, zinc is a big part of it. Uh, I think it's magnesium, though. I'm always getting magnesium and manganese and all mixed up, but I think it's magnesium. Is, is There's a lot of magnesium in them. So a lot of these, these necessary uh, vitamins and minerals, it has a good contingency of those. It has contents. It has a lot of flavonoids in it. A lot of tannins, different tannins. And we're going to see what that means in just a second. And also polyphenols. Uh, and these polyphenols are probably really important. We're going to talk about that right now. Anthocyanin is one of the most important phenolic compounds in blackberry. And there's, there's variations of this as well, um, but this is the big one, anthocyanin. And uh, it, has been uh, it has been implicated in many of the health benefits of blackberry. So this, um, more than anything else, this is the molecule that everyone talks about. Um, there's others that people talk about, but anthocyanin is the one universal thing. Uh, there are, again, these and similar chemicals give the fruit its dark color and are the main contributors to the antioxidant, antiproliferative, so that's the anti-cancer aspect, and anti-inflammatory activities. Remember, we just said for inflammation, one of the best, I, I think we just said, the inf I don't remember what we said about the inflammation. Did we say that it was better, uh, the fruit was better, uh, anxiolytic, it's best. And then, uh, I don't know if we talked about anti, oh, anti-inflammatories, uh, especially from the fruit. Yes. So the fruit is particularly useful in inflammation because that's where a lot of this, these anthocyanins are, these black things, uh, these black chemicals. So we like dark fruits. Remember blueberries, blackberries, as dark as it gets. That's because it has these anthocyanins or similar chemicals, and they have lots of health benefits. So it makes lots of sense that that would be useful here. Other important constituents include proanthocyanidins, which were kind of before that it becomes anthocyanin, and stilbenes. So another drug uh, herb class, I mean, um, chemical class here. So lots of different things that have been found to be very useful from this herb. Drug-herb interactions. Well, as you can imagine, this is a fruit. It's eaten in... Uh, probably shouldn't be mass quantities sometimes, but it's a, it's a good fruit, low calorie, very tasty, lots of health benefits. Um, forget about the herbal benefits, just a lot of health benefits from eating it. So um, it gets eaten, and there doesn't appear to be any drug-herb interactions because it's a food substance. If there were, we'd probably be a little bit more concerned about it. Um, scholarly searches for this herb and interactions with drugs, cytochrome P450 and P-glycoprotein, all targets of drug-herb interactions does not show any known interactions here. So there really wasn't much uh, to worry about as far as interactions are concerned. However, there are some concerns so uh, uh, about this as every herb. 
So as expected, since blackberry fruit is a food substance, this plant is amongst the safest of herbs. So right off the bat, very, very safe, not worried about it. Several texts and a literature review showed very little safety concerns. The only thing mentioned was, the, was that tannins, while having some benefits, may also have some de deleterious effects, so, so harmful effects. Though there's no evidence they achieve high enough levels to be concerned with blackberries, with eating uh, or, or taking uh, medicinal substances that are blackberry-oriented. So I'm not worried about the tannins. Um, tannins are, are considered sort of both healthy and um, have some, some potential harm with it, but I, I don't think the harm really comes in until you, you have a lot of tannins, and I, and I don't think you can eat enough of these to, to get to those levels. And I didn't see anything majorly uh, in the literature that, that would um, be an issue for me at that point. So the only negative issue was actually from Holmes, who said blackberry leaf focuses on treating symptoms rather than syndromes. And so that's an interesting thing to say about a specific herb. And so I just, I kind of wanted to bring that up because in, in Chinese medicine, we, we, we kind of, we're trying to treat conditions and syndromes. So those conditions and syndromes may be very different from a Western medicine medical point of view, but um, it's, it, there are a few herbs that might have very specific and unique sort of uh, aspects to it to treat a symptom rather than a syndrome. But generally we look at syndromes. Blackberry leaf treats this, treats that, treats this, but we don't actually talk about underline why do you have those things in the first place and what is it treating in that context. And so um, an interesting thing, I, I tend personally to kind of say this a, a lot about Western herbal tradition is that they treat symptoms rather than syndromes, but I also freely say I'm not a Western herbalist. And so um, it may be treating syndromes that I'm not familiar with in those Western traditions. Um, but it's, it's interesting that Holmes, who does have a, a pretty good background in Western traditions as well as Chinese traditions, would say this as, as an issue with this herb. So there you go. So in conclusion, what a great herb. Easy to grow, really easy to grow. Just plant it and grow. And it has a wide distribution of, of um, climates that it can grow in. I believe it's between 5 and 10 is the USDA uh, climates that it will grow in. That's a lot of climates it can grow in. It's slightly dangerous to pick with the thorny varieties, so wear gloves or be very cautious, otherwise you'll get lots of little cuts. Delicious as a fruit or made into baked goods, jams, or whatever else you can think of. It's a great herb. And as a fruit, lots of health benefits and some say constituents uh, to extend life. So it can actually... That is one of the things I haven't mentioned. That is a traditional function of this herb because I just it's a little bit too broad for me. But it actually there are several traditional uh, uh, things that said this extend this is contributes to a long life or extends life. So that's an interesting one. You can use the leaves and roots for medicinal purposes as well. So the whole plant makes me want to plant some in my yard right away except it can grow out of control. As I mentioned, what it really does is I can't wait until the next time I go to Costco and buy a big tray of, of blackberries, which uh, I enjoy and very much and just eat them. So I'm really, really, really want some blackberries after <laughs> working on this all week and, and talking about it today. So that's the basic conclusion. There's not many herbs that I go, I really want those right now. 
I did do that last week with the with the herb mint. Uh, the last, uh, not last week, the last episode. We were talking about field mint, um, boha, and I did. I ordered some field mint um, plants. I had peppermint plants, which are not the same thing as we discussed. And I ended up um, on waiting for the plants to come, so I can I can plant them. All right. So blackberries need them now. Want to go? In our next episode. We will be exploring a wonderful Chinese single herb, Tianmen Dong, or asparagus root. I don't know what it is. It just seems like the last several episodes. I love asparagus. I don't know why. I just keep picking these things. I, honestly, it's random because these were all episodes that were supposed to be done before, and for whatever reason, they didn't happen, so it's sort of random that it's coming up. They're all coming up. Um, wonderful asparagus. Uh, this uh, Tianmen Dong is a useful, powerful, and relatively commonly used Chinese herb in the yin nourishing category, often used for menstrual and postmenopausal cases. And of course, there will be something different about the episode. So don't miss our next exciting episode. Maybe we will answer the question, does asparagus root make your pee smell funny? Maybe we won't. Maybe we will. You got to tune in to find out. And with that, I want to give you guys uh, a big thank you. Uh, and uh, just a little reminder, when you buy from Amazon, if you could go to our Spurbs Herbs homepage and click on the banner ad, I'd get a few pennies from it. Uh, that'd be nice. I haven't had a few pennies for a while. And uh, you can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com or at our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please, uh, it would do us a, a huge favor, just a massive favor, if you'd give us a five-star review in your favorite podcast app. That would be amazing and would be very appreciative. So thank you. As always, we have our bibliography. Extensive this time. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Spurs, Spurs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins. Dobbins. Rogers. Campbell. 